I can't believe what I'm watching. That's the pre-code promise. That's the pre-code promise. I can't believe what I'm watching, especially in terms of racial representation. You are listening to the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we brought an analysis of stigmatized creative expression in film, art, and literature to understand the misunderstood. Your host is Miguel Rodriguez. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning into the Horrible Imaginings podcast. We are formerly the Monster Island Resort podcast, and I like to discuss the darker macabre sides of history, art, literature, film, and beyond. To understand the misunderstood, as I say in the bumper, before I introduce my new co-host, a word about today's episode. The sixth annual Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival is about to get started in Hollywood, California. And you are currently listening to the first of a series of episodes dedicated to classic film and discussing film history throughout the ages. I do want to thank Turner Classic Movies for being such an inspiration as to uh, generate the kinds of content out of their fans and other creators from their excellent work with preservation and keeping classic film alive. This episode came at a particularly interesting time for a number of reasons. First of all, Starbucks, as many of you listeners may have known, started a very ill-advised and I think now defunct (laughs) campaign called Race Together, where they were going to have their workers initiate conversations about race with their customers, which obviously backfired because it's a pretty terrible idea. I just want it clear from the outset that we have been discussing this episode for long before the Starbucks debacle, and this actually has nothing to do with what happened with Starbucks. But it's interesting how well these coincide. In addition to that, I have just spent the last couple of months working with the San Diego Latino Film Festival. It is a great organization here in San Diego that has spent the last 22 years spotlighting independent cinema, created by Latino communities from all over the world. I also work regularly with the Film Out San Diego LGBT Film Festival, as well as the Asian Film Festivals and others. And I also direct my own Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, which spotlights independent and macabre film. If I'm familiar with anything, it is the general idea that the independent film world is light years ahead of the huge studio monsters in terms of equal representation of race, sex, sexual orientation at all. Things can always get better anywhere, of course, but one of the benefits of indie film is the general democratization of the camera for different points of view. I just want to make it clear that the films we're discussing in this podcast and the film culture we are targeting in this episode is specifically the Hollywood major studio system. And yes, we do know that independent gives us another option. Another point is our topic is race sensitivity in film and It's a topic that is still super volatile, super sensitive. It is also one that tends to court the trolls. This show has never really been a political mouthpiece for me, and I don't really ever intend for it to be. But in order to frankly discuss art, which is what I started the podcast to do, particularly art over a long period of time, some topics eventually become unavoidable. Point number three... I'm extremely opposed to censorship of any kind, and I do believe that we can learn from art even when we don't agree with it. The films we are going to discuss are all excellent films and should be seen. 
That being said, I think of this show as a starting point for discussions rather than a final word, even if it may not seem that way. Finally, my last point. It would be really impossible to nail the extent of race representation in cinema's 115-plus year history. Yes, we are probably going to leave a hell of a lot out. This episode, honestly, is long enough already. I also think some forms of racist imagery are more easily classed as racist than others. For that reason, we decided to focus most of our conversation on what some people might deem less extreme examples of film racism than, say, Birth of a Nation. I believe racism exists on a spectrum, and one not need use the most extreme examples of that spectrum in order to speculate that something may be wrong. The spectrum model of racism is critical to identifying how racism used to look on our timeline, as well as where we could see ourselves today on that timeline. Better than before, but with room to get better. Today we're using pre-code movies as central elements to our talk, but more on that when we get to the discussion. I'm excited because I have a new co-host who will join me today, as well as I hope several times in the future, if I don't drive her too crazy. Her name is Angela Englert, and she's already giggling, so I'm hoping that's a good sign. Hi, Angela. (laughs) Hello, Miguel. How are you? And hello to absolutely everybody out there. Very nice to be with you tonight. I promise I am not going to be driven off, or at least (laughs) I don't expect to be. I totally waved, (laughs) so... I'm clearly adapting to the medium. <laughs> Today, for your flagship maiden voyage at the Horrible Imaginings podcast, uh, we're actually joining a whole cadre of other blogs over at Shadows and Satin, as well as Precode.com, who are uh, doing a blogathon. And uh, we're very happy that they allowed us to do a podcast. But uh, I do want to throw this out there, anyone who's listening, if you go to shadowsandsatin.wordpress.com, or even if you just Google, as I just did, pre-code blogathon, uh, and I'll have a link on the site as well, you can see the list that's scheduled of people's blogs. And what most people are doing are choosing a film to discuss on their blogs. Just a couple of ones out there uh, that are going to come out the same day as ours. We have Forgotten Films talking about Downstairs, This Girl Friday blog talking about Taxi, Silent Locations blog talking about Lady Killer, Once Upon a Screen blog talking about The Divorcee, Shroud of Thoughts blog talking about one of my favorite films of all time, Island of Lost Souls. So there's a whole huge slew of people participating in this blogathon. So when you listen to our conversation and we're talking about pre-code and you want to say, you know what, I kind of want to check some of these films out, that's a great place to go and get yourself a watch list. Let's define pre-code a little bit because I am interested in how often I mention pre-code and have people not have heard of it, as well as when I do explain what uh, I believe pre-code to be, the kind of surprise that people often have. Because I think when people think of classic film or older films or black and white films, they don't realize that there was a period where films would tackle topics that were a little bit uh, more risque shall we say, whether it was drug addiction or infidelity or sex or prostitution. Interracial couples. Yeah, interracial couples, absolutely. Very vibrant, controversial, fun, interesting time, lots of 
great movies that people need to see and are actually pretty widely available because of, you know, well, pirating and <laughs> copyright restrictions <laughs> and things like that. Some of them were actually saying some really interesting things, even for the time. Yeah, I absolutely had no idea we could period until I started to roll with Drive and Mob a little bit, TCM Party, and, you know, there's a consciousness raising there where I think a lot of people do kind of think of film as, okay, well, there's everything from the modern era, from like the 70s, um, the sexual revolution and uh, civil rights movement on, and, you know, that's something we can relate to. And everything from prior is the golden age of Hollywood, and it's the thing that we expect to be on MeTV. But these pre-code films aren't like that at all. They kind of speak the same language that modern films tend to. Right. I mean, it, it can be kind of shocking. Pre-code as a definition it is rather new to me as well. However, I have grown up on silent films, and I, and I had seen a lot of silent films where, like The Man Who Laughs, for example with uh, Conrad Veidt, where there's a scene of nudity in a pool. What? You can't and, and do like, that? Yeah, and I was like, what? They did these in these old movies, they you know? Nudity uh, in 1929? <laughs> well, exactly. You know, and, and in a way, when you mentioned the 70s and the exploitation era, the 70s was almost a revolution on the cycle or the uh, swing of the pendulum back to what was in the 20s. I can see that. I can absolutely see that. You know, you have films like uh, Madame Satan, you know, it has like orgies and stuff in it. But pre-code specifically, when people talk about it, can be traced. Some people start it when the talkies first arrived. But I tend to think of it as right after the crash of Wall Street. So the, the Great Depression. And the reason I think that they're tied is because when the Great Depression happened, it tended to be these kinds of movies that people would still shell out some money to see uh, as a way of escapism, mm -hmm. right? I do think that the pre-code era kind of starts with the crash of Wall Street and obviously until the Hayes Code is strictly enforced, which is where we even get the term pre-code. The Hayes Code started in the early 30s, but didn't actually get strictly enforced until 1934. So you've got this wonderful little window of hundreds of films that were made where they were trying to give people a thrill. Good times. Yes. Good times. But there's a lot to see and a lot of really fun saucy stuff and a lot of history there too. But what we're going to be talking about for my first podcast, we're going to lay to rest a lot of questions about race sensitivity and pre-code film and its legacy through the decades because that's not going to be difficult for us to get done in a half hour. That's right. <laughs> I mean, and if we can lay that to rest, wouldn't that be... Quite an amazing achievement for one little podcast. Perhaps just highlight a couple of things and say, dude, that's kind of messed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping what we can do is talk about different films that have happened in the past through the lens of 2015 and see if we can compare the way Hollywood would represent our culture through film and whether or not things have changed or to what degree things have changed. So to give Shadows and Satin as well as Precode.com the credit here, this did start with their idea to have a lot of people blog about the Precode film era 
And uh, you and I sat down and tried to talk about what pre-code film we wanted to discuss. And just through natural progression, it, it led to talking about race sensitivity in film. I believe, what was the first? I think it was Mask of Fu Manchu we threw out there, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Mask of Fu Manchu, Boris Karloff, and also Hatchet Man which I had not seen before. You're welcome. You've, you're one of the best people on earth. Um, that was a really, really nice <laughs> film to be uh, introduced to. But uh, those were two pretty strong examples of something that we just don't see as much today. And, you know, that's Caucasian actors portraying Asian characters. There's what I think most people would consider to be a great deal of cultural insensitivity, although in context, it may have been less so. It's just something that naturally fascinates you when you come from our perspective, because there are so few examples of that now. But one could also argue that there are so relatively few attempts to even portray culture honestly or as honestly as one can. It's it's kind of natural to look at that and say, dude, that's messed up. But you do need to get past that a little bit, I think. That being said, and talking about pre-code, um, we're gonna, you and I are gonna talk about pre-code as a social benchmark of race sensitivity in film, or the representation of ethnicities or people of color in film. And all of the movies that we're gonna talk about are absolutely well worth watching. So do yeah. check those out, look those up. So let, let's just name the titles that we're going to specifically focus on. The Mask of Fu Manchu came out in 1932, which very interestingly came out the exact same year as The Hatchet Man in 1932, which just as interestingly came out the exact same year as 13 Women, the other film we wanted to discuss, 1932. So 1932, big year for whitewashing or white people playing people of color in dramatic films. And we might throw some other titles out there, like we discussed very briefly The Jazz Singer with Al Jolson for obvious reasons, which came before any of the others, I believe, 1927. So right on the cusp of that pre-code era, all of which have questionable representation of ethnicities or people of color. I think questionable is probably the best word for it. Holy crap, we've got Boris Karloff <laughs> and Myrna Loy in Mask of Fu Manchu as uh, people of Chinese descent. And not only that, but really, really vicious people of Chinese descent. And we've got the Hatchet Man, who has none other than uh, Edward G. Robinson as a Chinese assassin. So both of these are, as you said before, really interesting examples I guess a really hideous term is yellow face, but really, you know, it required prosthetics. There was a lot that they did makeup wise to make a white person. And I'm going to use air quotes here. Look Chinese. Yeah. In lieu of just getting a Chinese actor. Yeah. And there's also Loretta Young in Hatchet Man, too, who I did not recognize until very, very far into the film. That's right. Loretta Young. Oh, my God. No, I'm so used to her being so housewifey. That's unkind of me. I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've got Myrna Loy, who, who the world loves and adores as Nora Charles. Yes. But this is in Myrna Loy's vamp period, where her 
and again in air quotes here, her exotic features would get her roles like this, as well as 13 women. Although it does get complicated as time goes on, after the Hayes Code starts to be you know, properly enforced, insofar as one of the elements of the Hayes Code was the more rigorous enforcement of the anti-miscegenation mm-hmm. so that meant you couldn't have a white actor playing opposite someone of any other ancestry as love interest mm-hmm. and that was something where there was arguably a little more wiggle room in the pre-code era even to and I didn't find this out until today uh, Sesue Hayakawa being a major sex symbol in uh, the silent film era and uh, also these very early talkies in the pre-code era. Like many people, particularly people who weren't really cognizant of this era of filmmaking, I mean, you know, this is all this is all ancient history. This is under, you know, the dust of a degraded celluloid way back in the past. You, you don't think about these things. But I never realized that that this was a given reason for changing the casting for films in this era, but it absolutely was. Um, with The Good Earth, there was a very, very popular actress, Anime Wong, and she was being considered um, for the heroine's role, but because of the anti-miscegenation roles, she couldn't be cast as the heroine against a white guy. So yeah. they were like, okay, well, you can be the villain. You can be the Asian dragon lady villain. And she said, no, you're not going to have this film that's about Chinese characters and have the one Chinese character in the film played by a person of Chinese ancestry be the villain. That's insipid. But for a long, long time, that was the way that it is. And it's still the way that it is. It is still the way that it is. I mean, we can we'll start getting to examples from today that mirror this in an almost scarily retrograde way, like uh, Pay It Forward, for example. I am am curious as to the Hayes Code not only perpetuating what we'll call whitewashing, but actually exacerbating whitewashing. It it makes perfect sense, because the Hayes Code was like any other thing trying to cleanse art, where it also tends to have a lot of really racist or classist motivations behind it. Absolutely. Anytime you have you have an authority coming in and saying, this is how we are going to depict reality, that's generally an indication that they're not interested in reflecting reality at all. Mask of Fu Manchu used to be a very popular horror film. In fact, I was watching old cartoons I don't remember if it was Disney or Looney Tunes who did this particular cartoon, but it took place in a library, I believe, where all these characters were coming to life and dancing around the library. And there was a monster section that had Dracula and Frankenstein and the Mummy and Fu Manchu. That's fascinating. Were, yeah, jumping out of the book and, you know, dancing around on the bookshelves. I think it was an old Looney Tunes cartoon. In fact, if I can find it on YouTube, I'm going to have to post it to the site. But it just goes to show how Fu Manchu as a, as a villainous character was for a period right up there with Dracula and Frankenstein, which themselves were pre-code films. So I find it really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, uh, also Christopher Lee would 
play Fu Manchu later, just like he played Dracula and, you know, kind of kept it going. Right on the edge of when that was totally unacceptable. Right on the edge. <laughs> Not quite all the way into breakfast at Tiffany's territory. Uh, <laughs> but um, that is interesting, particularly in in the 30s when the Universal movie, when the Universal Monsters came out, they were really a fairly new invention. I mean, you know, they'd only been in existence for a few decades. I mean, right. for Fu Manchu to be in the marquee with them really shows his purchase at that time when those kinds of movies were really popular. And I'm sure, I am just guessing, and I'm sure there's someone who has, you know, a really well-maintained Alta Vista site on the whole Fu Manchu series that I should probably avail myself of. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm guessing that Fu Manchu hasn't translated across the decades as well as uh, Frankenstein's monster and Dracula, probably because of the yellow face. I'm going to hazard a guess. I think that's a fair <laughs> guess. What is interesting is it's not quite as surprising if you look back over pop culture over the few decades and seen how many Fu Manchu ripoffs there have been, including the Mandarin from the Iron Man comic series. Even the name the Mandarin is like the Chinese. You know, I mean, you couldn't make it more um, racist, really. <laughs> well, that's true. And, and at this point, since we're talking about The Mask of Fu Manchu, 1932, Boris Karloff stars as a doctor slash philosopher slash medic, a scientist who has traveled the world and gotten the highest education from the University of at Edinburgh to Harvard University and is basically bent using his brilliant brain on world domination. But he is also Chinese, which means, of course, he is highly uh, vicious and sadistic and devises torture. And I think that, that this is where pre-code comes out in The Mask of Fu Manchu is his, what I guess they would call his Chinese torture methods. Um, I'm particularly referring to the giant bell, which some of those scenes, I mean, it's like the 1932 version of torture porn in a way. No, it really, really is. Um, there is a scene where Myrna Loy is whipping a protagonist, oh. and she has a lot of black slaves there, and they're helping. Yes. It's like, oh my god. Yeah. So and, and she is just rapturous. Myrna Loy, Nora Charles is like the Marquis de Sade in this scene. Yeah, she's she's like, she has all of Fu Manchu's appetite for power, all of his inventive, uh, sadistic brilliance, but probably none of his intellectual discipline. Yeah, she's more of a wild card. And I will say that as much as Fu Manchu in this particular iteration and others is a negative stereotype and not something that we should cleave to in any way, I will say that Boris Karloff's Fu Manchu is really, really cool. He is a good villain. He's an awesome villain. 
Now for a nice long drink. <laughs> oh, I forgot to tell you, it was salt. He's lots of fun to watch. I love that Boris Karloff, you know, while he may be stereotypical in the aspect of being an amoral Chinese character in this um, period conception of that even being a thing, he doesn't adopt any other racial affects like we'll talk about with Charlie Chan. Yeah, Charlie Chan is most notorious for talking like a Chinaman, as as, as they would have said back then. But uh, you're right, Boris Karloff, while he speaks with a sinister quality, he doesn't try to go overboard with what the 1930s Hollywood would have considered a Chinese accent. So in a, in a way, you're right. I, I think we can appreciate, I mean, it's Boris Karloff. He's amazing. He's one of my idols. And there is a reason it became so popular is his Fu Manchu is extremely charismatic on screen. And the way he delivers lines is wonderful. Although so many horrifying, casual, racist things pop out of the mouths of the Caucasian heroes in the Fu Manchu movie as well. That's absolutely true. Uh, Because, you know, they're taking it as read that, well, he's Chinese, he's bad, what? So no matter how bad Fu Manchu may seem, it's still kind of hard to take their part in it. Well, from our perspective, you're right. But if we try to watch it through the eyes of 1932, I wonder how how true that is. But here are two ways to look at that point. Point one is they are the heroes. They are the ones... The white people, the the British people, I'll say. They're the ones we're supposed to root for. That's true. Right? And so they will say, you're right, horrendously racist things. And not only are they taking at face value that their racism is just a matter of fact, but the audience is clearly expected to take it at face value as well. And I do think that is part of the overall cultural moray of the time the xenophobia of the time. But I also think there's this other way of looking at it. Part of their racism came from lines like, a Chinaman, no way a Chinaman can beat me. And their racism led them to underestimate Fu Manchu, often to their own peril, right? Right. So it's it's almost like... It's like the cautionary element of a horror movie. Exactly, yeah. I think the point that we want to kind of get from this is not only Carlos magnetism, but the fact that we have a Chinese character who is evil. Yes, but also brilliant, also all powerful. Yeah. And I think we're, we're skirting kind of dangerous ground here because I can think of a number of times where this argument would be made that of course it's not racist. Look at how smart he is. Well, you know? I would never say it's not racist. I'm just saying that he is an effective villain. And so is Myrna Loy. She's very effective. And, you know, in the, by the same token that, you know, the, the casual racism of our heroes is kind of multivalent in the sense of, Hey, well, this is what we all think, but you can see how, what we all think might get us into trouble. Anyway, clearly audiences are expected to find Myrna Loy hot. Oh, yeah, no doubt. About your anti-miscegenation yes. <laughs> issues, I mean, here. She's overtly sexual. 
in this film. It's like, she practically rapes a prone, unconscious man, almost, if she hadn't been quite stopped by Fu Manchu, her father. And he doesn't even stop her because he thinks it's wrong. Yeah. He is not entirely unhandsome, is he, my father? For a white man, no. May I suggest, however, a slight delay in your customary procedure? You have further need of him? I have. Yeah. It's a very weird scene. <laughs> um, yeah. But I do think her, her moment of on-screen sadism is the one you were talking about, where it's a all-and-out S&M scene. Really? Ripping off the man's shirt, having him hung up and whipped by scantily clad, heavily muscled African-American men while she sits in a corner and laughs and screams in delight. It's such a bizarre scene. Yeah, it's pretty funny. One that I don't think we could have gotten post-1934. That There's your pre-code right there. That could not be remade. No, I don't. I don't think it could. But let's keep with 1932 right now, because there's this film, The Hatchet Man. The Honorable Hatchet Man from Sacramento is here. Send him in. Which uh, you, saw, you saw it more recently than I did, actually. It's got Edward G. Robinson. And why don't you talk about that a little okay. bit? Okay, Edward G. Robinson is a Tong assassin. And let's see. The way that Chinese society in America, they are in America, is organized. It's still kind of a caste society and everybody has their has their jobs and his job is to be the executioner for the Tongs. So in the very opening part of the film, he is called upon to execute his best friend, which he ends up doing. And, and then we do a, a fast forward a bit. Uh, his best friend had left in his will, his wish that his friend, also his executioner, marry his daughter. His daughter is just a child at the time that the friend is executed. We flashed forward, I don't remember, probably 15, 20 years, maybe, maybe not that long. Um, but she's of age and she is very much the apple of his eye. He wants to marry her, but he wants to marry her for love. She, at the same time, is kind of courted by this sort of dangerous, Chinese gangster guy and we start careening towards a really really dangerous love triangle and that's where our movie is going to end up the play between these two love interests and it's really really good I particularly enjoyed Edward G. Robinson's performance and again for a lot of the reasons that I enjoy Karloff as Pumanchu and you know maybe some other uh performances we'll discuss in a little bit because it was naturalistic not Sun Yat Ming the silk merchant yes but he's my closest friend a murderer is nobody's friend Sun Yat Ming a murderer why we were boys together came over on the same boat from China he wasn't in any way trying to play a Chinese man he was playing a character and a very sympathetic character tasked with you know, the kind of dilemma that tragic heroes all through history are tasked with. 
Right. One could argue that uh, Edward G. Robinson's character in the in the Hatchet Man was simply an interesting character who happened to be of Chinese descent. It wasn't intentional at the time for it to be making fun of the Chinese culture or denigrating to the Chinese culture. It was just a matter of course at the time to cast a white person in that role. And there were people, well, ahead. there were white people in all of the Chinese roles, I think. I'm looking at the cast list. I do believe there was at least one or two actual Chinese actors in, in very bit parts yeah. in The Hatchet Man. Minor roles, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at that now. We need to, yeah, and I think we should point out here that this happens with the with the protagonists, your leads. So you will see Chinese characters or people of color in various roles, but they, in this period, generally or ever wouldn't be the main protagonist so that's why you would have edward g robinson in 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 this role in 1932 but it it does seem as poor as the casting choice seems to our eyes you're right it's kind of uh it's not a buffoonery it's not a buffoonish role he's a charismatic and sympathetic character it's just edward g robinson playing a man of chinese descent which is very uncomfortable for us now yeah and but it's the makeup is kind of horrifying. It is absolutely horrifying. If you stay with it long enough to sort of get into the performance, you can see, well, you know, there there's no malign intention here. They're just trying to evoke a semblance of what they think the cast should look like. Um, but, you know, they're not, like you said, they're not denigrating anything. It's a really strong performance and a very taut and sad story that's worth watching. And I had never heard of this movie before, and I'm sure it would be considered pretty um, unpalatable just for the makeup. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm glad it would be unpalatable. However, at some point, you know, we need to talk about why these movies are still important to watch, if not more important than ever in their historical context as a as a kind of benchmark in comparison to where we are today as well as things are still nowhere near perfect so how much farther can we go to make representation better for different types of people but yeah the hatchet man is actually a really good film it's just it is that make that atrocious put on prosthetics on Edward G. Robinson's face to make him Chinese with a long braided ponytail. And it's, it's hard, you know, it, it is, it's like blackface. Yes. And, and blackface, I think blackface is, it stands out as, as exceedingly notorious because when blackface was used, it was used in a denigrating fashion. Yeah. So it, it's impossible not to relate the two. In my preparation for, you know, talking about this and learning more about it, I discovered that while most makeup manuals, like stage makeup manuals, uh, don't any longer, haven't for decades included instructions for how to do blackface or anything like that, there quite frequently will still be directions for how to make a Caucasian face, which of course the default assumption is you're going to be applying makeups to a Caucasian, so that's your starting point for exotic features. So, you know, that would be basically yellow face um, or, you know, maybe a sort of generic Native American-ness, that sort of thing. And, you know, as recently as, well, 
very recently, really, we can talk about Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. <laughs> um, there was that in 2006. There was a really big to do when Jonathan Price was going to wear yellow face in a production of Fly. Oh, yeah. You know, so whereas blackface, you know, we have all agreed as a culture that is not acceptable for a really long time. Yellowface is still kind of on the margins there. Yeah, it's disturbingly so. And I do think it, it is because of how extreme our history of with blackface is. Yes. There's some violence behind that that isn't necessarily there with Yellowface. But, you know, we are getting to the point where they're both unacceptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, we have been quite at that point for quite some time. It's just not to the extent that blackface has been generally disapproved of culturally the history that we have with it and how how absolutely atrocious it is 1927 we mentioned the jazz singer with al jolson and his very popular song mammy you can't watch that that and not be horrified yeah it is horrifying progress it's five years before fu manchu five years before the hatchet man but you know here's here's what's interesting also with the difference between the black face and making someone look Asian or yellow face is yeah, I hate to even say it. It's I know scary. it's absolutely repugnant to even say the word. If you look at it his- historically, you have characters like Edward G. Robinson in The Hatchet Man. You have Fu Manchu, who is, while evil, also brilliant and conniving villain and very charismatic. But you don't have that with characters with blackface. When people put blackface on, they were buffoons. Yeah. It was for comedic purpose and to make fun of an entire group of people. Whereas with yellowface, it could still be a character like in The Hatchet Man. I don't think, I can't think of any, I can't either. any example where a white person put on blackface in film. I'm going to Google it. Positive examples. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that's just awful. But it's it's awful to even think about. <laughs> I can't think of any example in film where a white person put on blackface to play just a regular character without making fun of black what people. What about Othello? Othello. That's the exception that proves the rule. I've seen Anthony Hopkins in what essentially was brownface playing Othello for a, a filmed theatrical. And, of course, Laurence Olivier in probably the most notorious version playing Othello in just straight up blackface. Othello is is a weird example because it's a direct adaptation word for word of something that was written in the 1500s. So it's hard to count that as a normal part of pop culture film canon. That's true. It's interesting when you look at the next film we're going to talk about, 13 Women. A lot of the a lot of the action in Othello is uh, uh, mobilized by the racial prejudice that Othello feels and that his society bears towards him. And our protagonist, or not really protagonist, although I suppose in the classical sense protagonist in that she gets things going, Myrna Loy is a, how is she described, of uh, Hindu-Japanese ancestry. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that's one of the better ways I've seen her described. Unfortunately, even in modern descriptions, she's referred to as a quote-unquote 
half-breed, which is another repugnant thing to say because it carries so many negative connotations with it. Which I was already concerned with because in this film, there is a character who is named Swami Yogadachi. Yep. <laughs> it sounds like we're making fun of it, right? But that's, that is actually what they named this character, see Henry Gordon playing Swami Yogadachi. This character is a driving force in this yes. film. I always like to think of Swami Yogadachi as not that character's real name, but a stage it name. It would have to be, wouldn't it? It would make sense. It would fit the story as well. But, you know, still, it's reflecting this, what one would assume is supposed to be sort of a casual white audience, eh, people from over there, well, insensitivity yeah. to any kind of... You know, it's, I, this is what I find so fascinating. We're still in 1932 in the pre-code era. This is the same year that The Hatchet Man came out, the same year that The Mask of Fu Manchu came out. And what you're talking about reminds me of Fu Manchu with, I think there's a, a natural contradiction that comes with xenophobia because xenophobia is so irrational mm -hmm. and so stupid <laughs> for lack of a better stupid. term just yeah, that that is the most so, used stupid it, it is it is about the height of stupid and and because of that you start seeing these weird contradictions in xenophobic people so the mask of fu manchu it was the racism they have but also that same racism made them victims of fu manchu and now we have 13 women, which is very much like four people about the other. And in fact, the other is indeed a villain in this film, Myrna Loy. But at the same time, she's only a villain because she's treated as the other. So it's like chicken and an egg kind of thing. At the end of this movie, basically the premise of the film is she is seeking revenge on these 13 titular 13 women but two were cut out so actually it's only 11 um <laughs> <laughs> extremely white women that she was in a sorority with at finishing school and they ostracized her because she was of mixed heritage and you know yeah. towards the end you know where we have this unspooling of the action and everything she explains her reasons for doing this and the, this that she's doing is uh, revenging herself on each and every one making them either kill someone they love or commit suicide or come to a bad end basically and it's all because they ostracized her she knew her only way to be accepted was to be accepted as a white woman and she unambiguously says that when i was 12 years old you're insane. You're insane. Maybe I am. But do you know what it means to be a half-breed, a half-caste in a world ruled by whites? If you're a male, you're a coolie. And if you're a female, you're, well, the white half of me cried for the courtesy and protection that women like you get. The only way I could free myself was by becoming white. But since these sorority sisters made such a point of excluding her and making her the other she is going to make them the dead so who's the villain in terms of who they're talking to when they're the screenwriters writing this film or when they're filming this for a 1932 audience who's the villain supposed to be it's a very interesting scene just because it's so frank and unflinching yeah it it pulls zero punches and 
I don't think it's possible not to sympathize with her at that moment. Even having seen everything that she's done through the course of the film, which is a lot, and she's caused a lot to happen. There's probably one thing where she endangers a child that pushes her over the edge of rationalizable evil. Again, all this stuff is pure pre-code. This would not have been in a post-1934 film. No, and this is another one of those things where even though the, um, the racial makeups are, one hesitates to say better, but, you know, are understated, more subtle. subtle, um, Well, what we have in, instead of prosthetics over her eyes, it's, she's wearing really heavy eyeliner. Yeah, basically. (laughs) And, 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 I think that Hollywood might attempt something like that at this point. I'm still pretty sure if I thought about it, I could think of a more recent example than Cloud Atlas, but, or they would cast an actress with, you know, quote unquote, ethnic features and just roll with it. You know, I don't think that they could replicate the scene because there's an anxiety about honesty about race in our culture. Very much. We, it's not a conversation we want to have. Although we're having it. We are. You and I are, are very brave. Yes, with coffee. And Starbucks had nothing to do with this conversation. <laughs> we have had this conversation planned since before Starbucks' arguably ill-advised <laughs> campaign. Yeah. I feel like there's probably a shock comedian joke in there somewhere about, you know, coffee orders being, you know, like for a flat white <laughs> oh like no <laughs> but um white chocolate please <laughs> oh man oh. Myrna Loy 13 Women a very harrowing film it's a harrowing film often called a, a very early slasher I film I saw it described as that and it's not a slasher film because there's no slash no there's um, not it's it's more like a final destination <laughs> Is a death <laughs> caused by in a serial manner. It is some very clever deaths. I think that's one of the uh, yeah. It's a, it's definitely what could be considered a serial killer film. It's, it's another uh, one of those films that's you know incredibly surprising because you know it's like you don't you don't look for content like that pre nineteen seventy four. A lot of people would put the line at Psycho. Too. Oh. True. But Psycho has a very pre-code sensibility to it, even though it's very much after code. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that the code really started to fall apart. Whenever we start talking about, you know, what distinguishes a pre-code film, my mind kind of skitters to uh Janet Lee in that black lace bra. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's not it's not pre-code, but that is the spirit of pre-code. <laughs> I think I wanna start moving past pre-code and talk about pre-code's influence and some of the films that came after, particularly in terms of racial representation. But I do think it, it, it would be good to mention the difference between Boris Karloff playing Fu Manchu and something I'm even more disturbed at, which is casting an actual Chinese or Asian American actor and having them act like a total buffoon. Like, does happen. I think it is the scene... With all of the yellow face and makeup and ridiculous nonsense that goes on in the mask of Fu Manchu, the abs and all the racist dialogue. The absolute worst part for me to watch is at the very yes. end on a ship where there's a Chinese boatman and our hero asks him 
whether if he's a doctor or a philosopher or whatever in order to make sure that he's not the next Fu Manchu and the the guy is just playing up this awful buck tooth moron. Yeah. You aren't by any chance the doctor of philosophy. <laughs> Law <laughs> medicine. I don't think so, sir. But are you sure? Oh yes, very sure. <laughs> I congratulate you. <laughs> Thank you. It's instructions to mickey rooney on how to play an asian man and that's it that 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 i think is the pain is it it's instructions to mickey rooney on how to play an asian man it's true you're absolutely right in all of these whenever there is an ethnic character in all the movies that we're talking about characters of asian descent there's always a bookend of okay it's safe though because this is what they're really like you know, there's a buffoon. And if we're going to cast any actual Asian actors, they're going to be, they're going to have bit parts. And, and you know, like we were saying before, this is a practice that persists. And, you know, as we get into these future films, we'll talk about that too. And it's okay because they're played by an Asian person. So it's not racist. Yes, yeah, but it totally is. Yeah, totally. Not that it's their fault yeah. for taking the job. No, like, you gotta make a buck. It's like Hattie McDaniel. I'd rather play a maid than be one. <laughs> That's kind of sad, but great. But I it love the line. I mean, it's it, like it totally explains people of color and the shitty roles they're offered throughout history. Both Hattie McDaniel and and um, people like Mantan Moreland who, you know, were talented comedians, but were relegated by Hollywood to play these really awful buffoonish type yes massa, no massa kind of roles that, you know, you see after pre-code is ended. It's interesting that the Hayes Code ends things like prostitution and explicit drug use and sex. If a man and a woman are on a bed on screen, they have to have at least one foot on the floor. All these really insane codes. But denigrating an entire race is perfectly A-OK. As long as it doesn't shock the waspish sensibilities, it's exactly. totally cool. Well... Later on, after in the 40s, we have characters like Mr. Wong would be also Carlock. Yes, he is. And the same vein as his performance with Fu Manchu. I mean, I've seen a couple of the Mr. Wong serials. And I don't know if you're familiar uh-huh. with Boris Karloff as Colonel March. No. It, it was another detective role that he played. Colonel March of Scotland Yard. I believe you can probably... Okay. Catch episodes on YouTube and maybe MeTV's archives. It was a TV show. show. And his performance as Mr. Wong, but for the yellow face, is pretty close to his performance as Colonel March. Edwards could have been murdered for two widely different reasons. The first and most obvious one, of course, is the theft of the Eye of the Daughter of the Moon. My first thought was that possibly the Far East friends of China had struck to recover what was rightfully theirs. But my countrymen here, who are in a position to know, assure me that that is not true. So, you know, again, in that performance, like Edward G. Robinson's performance in Hatchet Man, I don't see him in any way being a stereotype. You know, he's, he's playing a character, a really brilliant character. Uh, certainly, you know, He's styled as sort of a model minority. I think that perhaps a little bit less effusively than Charlie Chan. <laughs> yeah, especially Sidney Toller's Charlie Chan. Yeah, was right. Sidney Toller the one who 
got a snootful before he played Charlie Chan to, you know, give his speech the correct uh, slow cadence. <laughs> I don't know. Um, oh, man, that is just painful to hear. But I don't know about that method acting, if you will. I believe it was Warner Owen. I think I have found it. Ah. Um, he may have been the third actor to play Charlie Chan, but the second white actor. The only Charlie Chan that I've seen was a Warner Oland, and it was, uh, it's that I think he was on Scooby-Doo, or you know, he wasn't on Scooby-Doo, but they they had the um, <laughs> Charlie Chan facsimile on Scooby-Doo. And he, I remember that, actually. So yeah. everybody, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I and everybody, even if we haven't watched Charlie Chan, we're carrying around this idea of Charlie Chan. Pop, before it's too late, I think there's something you ought to know. Number two son resembled criminal, about to make confession. I don't know whether I've told you yet or not, but I think you're the swellest Papa fella ever had. Humble parent thanks unsettled weather for expression of love from favorite offspring. Oh, but I mean it, Pop. Honest. Then do not let fair skies tomorrow change restless mind. That fortune cookie wisdom, that stilted cadence. He Confucius yeah, say. He's brilliant, but he has not mastered the use of articles. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh. So it's still really kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Besides just the yellow face, now we actually have a, a caricature. Yeah, caricature is a pretty fair way to describe it. And it's another way of, of kind of combining the model minority with the buffoon. Because, you know, while he's not necessarily the suitcase fumbling kind of buffoon, it it neuters his brilliance in a way where it's in no way threatening. It still makes him the other. Yeah, he is not your action hero. So he still kind of has this, isn't he a funny little man thing about him? And, of course, a couple of the Charlie Chan films, the monogram films, include Mantan Morlin as his valet and his son, right? His son was his Chinese-American sons, played by, at least in the films I've seen, an actual Chinese-American actor with no hint of accent at all. Constantly berated by his father for being a moron yeah which you know a son being berated by his father there's nothing inherently racist about that as a what is cringeworthy is less about charlie chan berating his son and more of the played for laughs shenanigans between his son and mantan morlin uh, I believe his name is um, Birmingham Brown. Hey. Like a 70s pimp. Oh, totally. I mean, you can discuss the black exploitation era as uh, a lot of the black exploitation films were this very stereotypical look at black culture. However, at least we finally had African American actors in lead roles. So it's like almost a bit of progress. I haven't seen enough proper proper i haven't seen enough exploitation movies to really comment one way or the yeah. other although the ones that i've seen i really liked the protagonists and i was like what is that oh yeah they're all they're, <laughs> this is awesome they're awesome uh, they're totally awesome movies i i love i've got cool. it I'm, I'm a huge fan of the black exploitation genre i'm a huge fan of superfly i'm a huge fan of foxy brown and coffee i'm a huge fan of black caesar 
I'm a huge fan of a lot of these films. I still think that they're important films and they're an important part of history. And I do think that they opened the doors for a lot of black actors and even some black directors that hadn't been available before. So that that black exploitation era has its place as in as a as a milestone in cinematic history that I think we have to give it some credit for, even though it definitely was kind of prone to some stereotyping. It'd just be nice if instead of that being an era that collapsed under its own gravity or whatever and is sort of over, it would be nice if it just sort of evolved into more mainstream. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of what didn't happen, right? Yeah. Very, very few films were able to keep getting made in terms of us having a wealth of black helmed films it's still not that way it doesn't it's still that way with, it's not I mean, that way. with women and basically every minority you can think of we're yeah. still operating under the the straight white male matrix and here i think is where we can get to what i would like to call our main thesis or at least my own thoughts and you can tell me whether or not you agree or disagree but when we talk about these pre-code films and their representation of other ethnicities and some of the films that have happened between the pre-code era and now i think we can look at those films as an extreme example of how racially biased we used to be but i think we also can't let let that fool us into thinking that everything is so much better now. That's true. And it's like to the point about Hatchet Man. That couldn't be made today. But if they did make it today, they would just make it not Chinese. They would probably yeah. even keep keep Chinese names and just make it make it post-apocalyptic so it doesn't matter and we're going to have all white guys like with Fist of the North Star. <laughs> oh, all right. So you you brought out the Fist of the North Star reference. 1995, I believe you're talking about the HBO-produced live-action Fist of the North Star where they cast Gary Daniels and Malcolm McDowell and Chris Penn. Chris Penn is so <laughs> terrible in this movie. Oh, Although man. to the extent he, that he is a character you're supposed to hate, I I assume he's doing his job as an actor, but we have Malcolm McDowell as Ryukin. <laughs> exactly. Malcolm McDowell as Ryukin. They're keeping the Japanese names. Why are they going to... They took Seven Samurai and turned it into the Magnificent Seven. They took the story and placed it in Americana, and it worked. Mm -hmm. But to take something so unambiguously Japanese with Japanese names... And not hire any Japanese actors is insane. Although, speaking to the tradition that we've been talking about, they did have some Asian actors, but in minor roles. The only one right. that had any real screen time. He's a minor character who gets killed, basically, as an example to show what the stakes are. And I'm sorry, that was a spoiler for like a 20-year-old movie. Uh <laughs> yeah. A 20-year-old movie that no one really ever wants to see anyway. There are tons of examples from anime adaptations where this is just de rigueur. Or this is what happens in Night Shyamalan's... The Last Airbender was grievously ill-advised. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. And, you know, his explanation for the casting choices in that, where he takes something that is, you know, unambiguously Asian and you 
casts it with white actors except for the villain was you know well anime features are kind of universalized so you know this character might look like my daughter you know so you could say that she's indian but she could also look like you know someone's caucasian daughter which might hold some water if it weren't for the context of the series Exactly. It, do- it doesn't make any sense for the story. I think that people feel like they can have an excuse when they're adapting an anime or an animated story to live action. Say, well, you know, it's animated. You can't really tell that they're actually Japanese. But Dragon Ball, you know, it's like a retelling of the legend of the Monkey King. Exactly. His name's Goku. <laughs> You know, absolutely, it makes no sense. Of course, we've got this whole new idea of Scarlett Johansson getting cast for Ghost in the Shell. Clearly a Japanese character. It's cultural appropriation. I, I suppose we've made progress, at least in the sense that there's enough consciousness and also social media and everything. People can actually voice their discomfiture descent uh, with these kind of casting choices but it doesn't seem to really stop the gears or stop the practice hollywood is very slow to evolve and there's a couple of reasons for that we have here the difference between these films we've discussed in the pre-code as well as racist characters we saw in the silent era with films like birth of a nation and up to and including mickey rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's or something like that. There's a difference between those depictions, which are very overt in their xenophobia or their racism or their inadvertent stereotyping. You know, there's a, there's a spectrum. But now we have something rather more covert where we have... And there's so much consciousness, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Where... And, and even like without people mes- necessarily knowing, like that film, A Beautiful Mind, casting Jennifer Connelly, and and I believe she was a Peru, she was supposed to be Peruvian, I think. And that was uh, an important character. part of her character in the book, and it's just you know, it's absolutely mooted by casting a Caucasian actress. And she won an Academy Award for that particular bit of whitewashing. Twenty one, which I have not seen, but I know that you mentioned when we were talking about this uh, MIT team of card-counting whiz kids. Oh, wait. <laughs> I think there might be like one or two Asians in the movie, but they had to balance that out with some white faces, I guess. What makes the 21 example so much worse is that it's based on actual people. Yeah. But their Asianness was unacceptable. Yeah. Like, audiences can't relate to that, which is all kinds of incidents. That's another one of the things, sort of like the historical conversation with this particular issue of racial sensitivity or lack thereof. Back when Hatchet Man, you know, in in 1932, the mainstream, probably predominantly white movie-going audience probably had a very dim notion of what a Chinese society was like. And that's terrible. But... You know, that was the way that it was. We didn't, they didn't have the cultural penetration. People just didn't know. But now they do know, let's and they should know. Let's think of it this way, okay? This is the same era in which a gorilla was the scariest thing on the world. Yeah. It's the same era in which Dracula's castle in Transylvania features armadillos as <laughs> gothic creatures of the night. Oh. 
The armadillos have confused me my entire life. It it is. Well, you being from Texas, that must be even more crazy. But but I think that puts things a little bit into perspective in terms of your point is rather than evil intent at the time, it is a lot more to do with ignorance. But we're taking, you know, we're talking about movies that are taken from anime. Yeah. And they're going to whitewash those. There's no excuse now. And that's to me, you know. I mean, you can't really assign point values for willful evil in casting decisions. And a lot of it is, I know, it's probably straight up pragmatic. Look, we've got to have Keanu in this thing. But it is an invisible racism. And it's harder It's harder for people to accept as racism. So when you call it out or you try to have these conversations, people are not at all comfortable with it. And, well, you know, then, then you get into internet fights. But, well, in a lot of ways, it's more insidious than Edward G. Robinson with yellow face on because it's more covert because it's flying under the radar because maybe people didn't know general audience members didn't know that jennifer Connolly's character wasn't supposed to be the princess from labyrinth instead of who her character really supposed to be you know latina actresses that are out there that could totally do exactly and and that's what it comes down to is there are plenty of roles out there for a dive and it's not like we're saying get rid of all white actors of course but there are plenty of roles act out there for a more diverse actor base and more diverse stories that come necessarily from different points of view that are being stunted, that we're not getting because of whatever reasons. And like you said, it's probably pragmatism. It's probably still this extremely backward and old-fashioned Hollywood studio point of view that a movie featuring a non-white lead will not make money unless you have someone who is the exception that proves the rule, like Denzel Washington or Will Smith. Hopefully Idris Elba. I really want him to be James Bond. Idris Elba, there you go. And having that conversation now, even if there are people who get angry at it, but at least we're having the conversations. You know? Can you imagine in the 90s if someone had thought of someone like Idris Elba being James Bond, I don't think it would have even been considered. Probably not. I think it's fair to say the reaction that you're going to get from right-wing radio pundits is a, a pretty good time tunnel back about 20 years. So yeah. given that that was their major reaction um, to just the idea, probably a good carbon dating system for that. And, you know, I do want to mention the big long movie that I watched Cloud Atlas, which actually wasn't bad. The Wachowskis Cloud Atlas. I have not seen it. It's very long. It's it's interesting. I don't know if I can handle that much Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was a weak link for me. And I feel like it's mild treason to express such things, but Unless you're on my podcast, because I am not a Tom Hanks fan at all. <laughs> He's just not. They pushed him out of any kind of comfort zone. If Tom Hanks has a strength, it is that Jimmy Stewart-esque genuine quality, you know, to get the whole everyman thing across. I'll watch The Burbs and Joe versus the Volcano. Yeah, but <laughs> they, were, they were asking him to, you know, do some truly, to really stretch and he was just, he ruined every scene he was in. Another thing that was clanky was the fact that, you know, this is the only movie that I've ever seen where 
Halle Berry was put into whiteface, and you know mm-hmm. they had every kind of they had everything but blackface, pretty much. And those makeups, all of the makeups, not even the racial ones. There were ones, you know, for age. Uh, Hugo Weaving is a woman at one point. They were all pretty terrible. The makeup was a bad was a bad work. It, it was it was really really bad, um, and it. For me, it kind of kicked me out of the movie a little bit because you're doing a Where's Waldo looking for the actor that you recognize underneath all of this latex. And, you know, I remember when it came out, there was a lot of controversy because they had the eyelid prosthetics again. You have Halle Berry playing a white woman. Halle Berry also played a Latina, I believe. Her name's Louisa Ray. I'm not sure whether she was supposed to be mixed race or not but there wasn't any makeup for that it was just well she's a light-skinned black woman so close enough there was quite a bit of problematic makeup in that way but much like the pre-code movies it was it was probably done out of ignorance for a good reason or um, (laughs) not very effective from my point of view but i understand that they wanted the actors to play these different roles in different time periods and have that sense of continuity so you could see Tom Hanks being this or that. I'm not sure how else they could have done it, but it really would have been less distracting to me if they have just had floating text over their head or something. (laughs) This is just looking at this uh, revived usage of racial makeups. It really kind of highlights and underlines and puts in really bold font what a terrible practice it is and how no one should really do it again but yeah (laughs) and i i think i would agree with the thesis that avoiding the conversation is not resolving the conversation and to the extent that race bending is avoiding the conversation it's really showing that we've progressed much less since some um, pre-code treatment of uh, racial issues in movies or different races being portrayed in movies than we probably think that we have. Well, here's the thing with Cloud Atlas or other films like that, including, you know, recently Angelina Jolie was going to be a Cleopatra and even more insidious is Ridley Scott Exodus. He got a lot of flack for casting white people in Middle Eastern roles and, and Egyptian roles. And then he even gave the excuse, well, Hollywood only wants white actors. Well, then don't make your goddamn movie, but you're Ridley Scott. I'm sure you could have done it, you know? There's there's no excuse for what that film was. With those movies, they are saying that we are at this enlightened time. It seems this is the message I get from them. We're at this enlightened time where it's okay to have Tom Hanks in Asian makeup. We can talk about this more honestly. It's not a racist caricature and that kind of thing. But the problem is there are Asian actors who are great and struggling because there are no roles for them. And there are black actors who are great and struggling because there are no roles for them. And until that's not the case, then, you know. I, I agree. I think Hollywood and television industry gives us too little credit. I hope yeah. that as audiences become more diverse, as they will inevitably with the ubiquity of everything streaming, and as people begin eating up more things, 
the audiences become more diverse, the creators become more diverse, there will not be these gatekeepers at the studios saying, well, it has to be a white couple because, you know, the, the teenagers at the Cinemark won't relate. Let's kind of wrap this up. I do want to point out that the pre-code films that we discussed are very enjoyable films. They're well worth the time to watch them. And I'll even go as far as to say that some more painful films like Birth of a Nation or The Jazz Singer are still important films to watch at least from a historical perspective of the spectrum of racism or the spectrum of ethnic representation. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's not doing anybody any good to just stuff things down the memory hole and never address them again. In fact, I think recently C-SPAN 3 aired Birth of a Nation. And, and I'm sure that, I mean, and some people would get upset. That's the other end of the spectrum of danger there is... You know, there are people who are offended by the incredibly overt racism in Birth of a Nation. But to want that film never to be shown again is the exact opposite of what we want to do. We need that film as a reminder of how things were. People who would claim that we are in a post-racial America and claim that occasional flashpoints of strife are, you know, anomalies and things like that. And I think it's like if you don't know your history and if you don't see this evidence, it's much easier for those kinds of arguments to gain some purchase. That's true. And, And it perpetuates difficulties that a lot of people have in our country. Absolutely. Well, Angela Englert, I think we are going to say goodnight for tonight. Any last thoughts about this particular topic from you? I want Idris Elba to be James Bond. You want Idris Elba <laughs> to be James All right, I'll make some phone is, calls, Angela. That is grace bending that I think that we need more of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll make some phone calls. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I have that kind of influence. I have no influence whatsoever. <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> Where can people find you? You are Mecca Angela on Twitter. I am Mecca Angela on Twitter. I am a contributor at thelosthighway.com where you will find many terrible movies. Not good movies like we've been discussing, but still <laughs> worth watching. Actually, I will probably do a review of Fist of the North Star very soon. <laughs> Let me know when you have that so I can share it I totally will. Um, And, yeah, those are my main ways to see me, unless, of course, you happen to be watching when I'm doing live captioning. If you look in a bar or restaurant and you see some captions scrolling across the bottom of the screen, that might be me. (laughs) That's the day (laughs) job. Yeah, that's the day job. (laughs) Close captioning. All right. Until next time, I'll see you live tweeting. Everybody out there, if you ever want to watch movies with a whole lot of people at the same time, go on Twitter, watch for hashtags at certain periods of time to watch a movie together and live tweet it. To find all the various live tweeting opportunities, you can go to a website called livetweeting.org, where they have the various drive-in mob, TCM party, B-movie maniacs, Trash Tuesday, Columbo, all these different live tweeting excellent festivities that happen pretty much every day now. So you may see Angela and I at one of those on some day. Uh, Angela is at Mecca Angela. And of course, yours truly 
on Twitter at H-I-F-F-S-D or HIFSD, where you'll find all the information you'll ever need to know about being a good person. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Angela. I hope we get to talk again very soon. Okay. Cool beans. Good night. Good night.